And you're listening to MLVC, the Madonna podcast, your place for all things Madonna Louise, Veronica Ciccone. Hey, everybody, it's Tony, and we're about to cause a commotion with our guest today. <laughs> yes, we are. And hey, everybody, it's Stefan. Thanks for joining us for another episode of MLVC. We recently spoke to Breakfast Club, and there were so many questions that we didn't get a chance to ask to Stephen Bray and his work with Madonna. He was gracious enough to come back for a follow-up interview. Welcome back, Stephen. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Good to be here. Good to be here. For those of you who may not know Stephen Bray, shame on you if you're listening to this podcast and do not know who Stephen Bray is. He is a songwriter, drummer, record producer, probably best known to all of our listeners as... uh, someone who collaborated a lot with Madonna. Uh, as I said, he was a member of the band Breakfast Club. Is it you won the Grammy or the the musical won the Grammy? I, I want to get it right. The musical won a Tony for Best Revival. Several actors won Tonys along the way. And um, the sound, the, the recording, the cast recording won a Grammy from okay. our 2016 revival. Okay, so, yeah. um, and the music the, we're talking the, about is The, the Color, color purple, purple, yes. Yeah. Uh, so for the, the Broadway show and the soon-to-be Hollywood musical movie version as well. So That's right. Um, wow. Yeah, so I don't know, Tony, you want to just jump right in? We don't want to waste any time. Yeah, absolutely. So, Stephen, welcome back. We're happy to talk to you again. Um, you were the first member of The Breakfast Club to meet Madonna, which happened at the University of Michigan way before anyone went to New York. What kind of music performance scene, if any, did you and Madonna find yourselves in at uh, U of M before you eventually went to Berklee College of Music to study music and Madonna went to New York to study dance? Well, well, oddly enough, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in 1977, you know, we were at the height of disco. This mm-hmm. was a very, this is a very dance-friendly era of music. And um, I'm... There's, there's my memory. Memory, you'll find as you, as I answer these questions, my memory is fading. But <laughs> like, like old photographs. But my, um, I either met Madonna at a dance class, a U of M dance class that she was attending, and I was playing hand percussion for because you know they'd hire drummers mm-hmm. to come in and play for the. I don't know if it was an African dance class or something like that. I know that I did that at one point and saw her there, but I'm pretty sure the first time I really laid eyes was at the blue, what was then called the Blue Frog discotheque. And it was like one of those classic movie scenes where she came out onto the dance floor. I was waiting tables in my dance your ass off t-shirt that they made us wear. <laughs> And she cleared the floor with, uh, maybe she was with a dancer friend of hers or something. And, and, and as, as she, as we've learned, uh, as she likes to do, she commanded the attention of everyone in the room, including me. And uh, I offered her a gin and tonic. I said, what do you want to drink? And I said, I, I want to buy you a drink. I, I don't know what made me do that because that's not, was not my style. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> but, you know, obviously I was meant to do that. And uh, graciously she said yes. Wow. But to answer your, your, the rest of your question about the scene, yeah. 
a lot of dancing going on. I was playing in a bunch, I was playing drums in a bunch of different ensembles. The one band was called The Cost of Living. And I remember her coming to our gigs and being one of the only people dancing, you know, on the, on the dance floor. And it was all original music. So we weren't super popular because people didn't know the songs. Because I also right, played yeah. in a top 40 band called Bigfoot, I think, at the time. And uh, everybody danced because we were playing, you know, Boz Skaggs and Van Halen and Donna mm -hmm. Summer and Iggy and the Stooges. We were playing every anything and everything. And, and she would come to those gigs, I think. But I, I know she was at the cost of living gigs and, and she'd show up other places where I'd be playing. And, and, and we were we were hanging out for that that 1977 into 78, maybe. And then I think that's when she moved to New York. Mm -hmm. did, did you guys have discussions with each other about like when we go to New York or when I go to New York or we have to go to New York? N not at all. Not at all. She was, I just remember being sad when she left town, but um, she left, I think, to pursue dance because it wasn't, she wasn't really talking about music at the mm -hmm. time. And um, it was mostly poetry and dance in her life and selling ice cream at the ice cream store. I do remember going to the ice cream store <laughs> on South University in Ann Arbor where she used to work and, and, and give me free ice cream. That's such a bizarre visual to imagine that Madonna <laughs> did something as mundane as sell ice cream. <laughs> yep. She and her friend, uh, uh, I think Whitley, I think they both worked there. You're really great. You're taking me back. You're taking oh me back God. to 1977. It also seems like if she was working at an ice cream shop, she'd be one of those like people that you see in an 80s movie who like barely does any work. You know, she's like <laughs> doing her nails and like just dancing behind the cash register. She always had a really thick book of poetry. I do remember that. And and I think she journaled all the time too. So yeah, she was definitely pursuing other things other than ice cream. She saw beyond the, the, the chocolate cones. Beyond the scoop, which, it might <laughs> yeah. be, which might be a title of her autobiography. I know, right? <laughs> We're going to jump around a little bit here. So uh, in addition to working with Madonna in your own band, you also co-wrote several hit songs for some rather eclectic artists in the 80s, such as E.G. Daly, who you worked with Jellybean on her single Say It, Say It. I love it so much. Also famously <laughs> with Regina on Baby Love, which confused pretty much anyone who ever heard it when it came out <laughs> and the, the jets you did a great song for the jets on the um beverly hills cop 2 soundtrack and also kylie minogue when she came to america and again working with nile rogers on the earth girls are easy soundtrack tell us what it was like being a songwriter producer for hire in the 80s like did they come to you did you go to them was it something mca put together you know i i, I used to say to my mom i'd say you know, because my parents thought I was crazy moving to New York by myself, broke without a place to live or anything like that. And and I said, listen, all I really need to do is get one decent song out there and I'll be OK. Because they were really my parents were teachers and they were really concerned that this music thing was mm -hmm. a bad, I, bad idea. Well, you know, once, you know, Into the Groove was a kind of a <clears throat> interesting mistake because we had written that song for someone else. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> I think Mark Kamen's was producing somebody, maybe Shane, although yeah. some, I, I could. That's what I've read. Shane? I've read okay. it with Shane, yeah. I think it was Shane who, um, who was supposed to sing that song. And, you know, Madonna took it down the street in 1980, I want to say three or four when they were shooting Desperately, because I lived in East Village and they were shooting Desperately Seeking Susan right down the street. And she took the tape over there and she must have played it for the producers and they were like, let's work this in. You know, mm -hmm. very smart of them. I imagine there was already the danceteria scene in the movie, but 
somehow that song worked, you know, got to be the one they were dancing to. But I'm saying all that to say that, you know, that was sort of a, when, once that became a Madonna single in what was it, 1984, late 84, 85, something like that. That, that's when people began to say, hey, would you, you know, did you have any songs for this artist and that artist? You know, Jelly Bean, who, you know, I love to remind people, really gave me a really great start in New York by hiring me to do arrangements for him, some drum programming for him. And, you know, Crazy For You, he had me do the drums on that one. And he began to call me in for remixes and I'd do drum programming for him. And so, I think he was producing E.G. Daily, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. And he asked if we could write a song. I think I wrote that with Tony C. and E.G. Yeah, we wrote that song. We wrote Say It, Say It for, for her based on a jelly bean thing. So, mm-hmm. so, and then from there, you mentioned the Jets. You know, once, we got, once Breakfast Club got signed to MCA, that kind of opened us up to that world of soundtracks. And that was the amazing time, era of Kathy Nelson, who I might have mentioned yeah. When we were talking about Breakfast Club, she ran soundtracks for MCA, and she's famous for having created these amazing compilations of, of you know, Top Gun type soundtracks, where right, right. The, the the soundtrack is almost as as successful as the film. And so she asked us to write that song for um, "Cross My Broken Heart" for the Jets, which was which I wrote with my dear friend Tony Pierce. And uh, just, you know, things, the phone just, once you have, once you get lucky, the phone doesn't stop ringing and so you stop mm-hmm. picking it up. So Right. People just want to keep working with you. you they, know? they do. And I was, and, and Eddie from Breakfast Club coined the phrase, he said, oh, let's just turn on the radio because <laughs> I was having a really good, I was having a really good run. Well, so, yeah, and as Tony said, we are sort of skipping around in time just to mm-hmm. sort of give a That's bit right. of context um, to jump back. Obviously, Madonna was part of Breakfast Club, then she left, and Breakfast Club <clears throat> continued in a different direction without her. Uh, you had collaborated with her on several demos that eventually got her a record deal at Sire, and those amazing stellar collaborations finally came to be the like Virgin Sessions and established Madonna's signature sound for the remainder of the 80s. Did she want a different sound from the band when she was in Breakfast Club? Was that something that she was sort of saying, I think we should do this? Or um, was it very much she just was aligned with keeping Breakfast Club, Breakfast Club, and she thought, after I leave here, I'm going to do my own thing? I for, Now, it, I'm guessing a little bit because I, we weren't contemporaneous in Breakfast Club. We weren't in the band at the same time. So Because I basically took her place as the drummer. Right. Um, but creatively and musically, what I'd say happened is that she realized that she wanted to be in front. She wanted mm-hmm. to be in front and she wanted to, she wanted to be the, the center of attention. I, I don't know where that came from, but <laughs> she, she really enjoyed, I think, being a front, the front person. And the sound of her songs that when I first came to New York in 1980, in August of 80, she had a set list of, I don't know, 10, 15 songs. And they were still pretty, I wouldn't call, they're not, they weren't as punky as Breakfast Club. They weren't quite as out and out, sort of thrashy, you know, super Ramonesy. I think I used mm-hmm. to say. They were more, they, I think they more reflected her pop sensibilities. And they were really cool songs. I'm sure those demos are out there somewhere. There's a song called Love, Me, Love for Tender, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys know that one, but that's a really, that's really indicative of, like I thought it sounded like, well, once we got, once I got my hands on it, um, because when I when I joined the party, I started to 
you know, bring some of my ideas to it. So the, the song Love for Tinder I'm talking about, I think it sounded a little bit like the birds, you know, and I'm probably going back <laughs> way before a lot of your audience was born. But, um, you know, the birds, Roger McGuinn and David Crosby, this beautiful, folky, you know, rock band. And, you know, the, her songs had a simplicity to them that I think some of these, it just lended itself to arrangements like like the love love for tender and hot house flower you guys know that one have you heard that song mm-hmm. oh my god mm-hmm. yeah you have some fun digging to do cuz they're i think they're <laughs> oh, out yeah. there on the internet there's a song called hot house flower if you leave me alone i might die was the lyric um and there was a really good range of sounds that i think reflected her her detroit roots you know the motown pop mm-hmm. roots and that's kind of how I know I'm jumping around on you guys a little bit, but that's why we got along together so well because we just had such similar instincts in terms of what we what we what we loved and what we wanted to try and create. Mm-hmm. And can I ask what was it? What was the collaborative approach when you worked with her? What was it like getting together to work on music with her? Was it sort of like? clear delineation of who was taking care of what and you were going to step in and do this or were you both bringing ideas to the table i well definitely both bringing ideas to the table because she is i i like to remind people who don't understand she's an extremely gifted musician and musical person her music her sense of musicality and harmony and melody is 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 all hers nobody gave her any of that Mm -hmm. and if i did anything it was to sort of help shape things and maybe create arrangements that showed off the song better which is i i you know what i what i think is the important job of of collaborators but the but the process in terms of style we both love a lot of different kinds of things i think that i was a little more clubby though she as much as she loved dancing the music she was making and maybe that was because you know a lot of the times when you're a songwriter what you how you write is based on what instrument you play and how you play that instrument. And so she's approaching the songwriting as a guitarist and maybe as a rock guitarist. Whereas I was coming at things like as a drum programmer, as a drummer. And I think the songs that I was writing some songs on my own that were more kind of club out of the club world. Mm -hmm. And, and thank you for that. (laughs) You're welcome. Smart. I was smart enough to realize that, my version, my singing of a song is not going to sell it. And I was, I said, we were, we had been doing a lot of Madonna songs in, in the Emmy band or the millionaires or modern dance or whatever we were called at the time. But I said, Hey, I got this song. Will you sing it for me? It's, you know, it's called ain't make, ain't no big deal. And here's the lyric and here's how it goes. Mm -hmm. And thank God she sang it. And, um, have you heard that demo? Have you? That's oh, yeah. out oh, yeah. there too. Yeah. That's yeah. out there too. But not yeah. the record. Not the one that's on the record. Not the one that's on Attack of the, the Killer Bees. Right. That's the, the one that. Yeah. That's the one that Mark Kamen's produced. There's a more disco-y version of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard that one, but um, mm-hmm. but that that was a smart move on my 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 part because she sang it way better than I did, and I think she took it around to. Uh, uh, Danceteria and Mark Kamen's, I think, was literally playing the cassette, you know, that we'd made, and I think that caused her to trust my instincts about the dance side of things, um, which was, and like I say, a whole other route. I think her manager at the time, Camille, was pushing her more to be like a share, you know, right. like a like a um, 
there's another demo out there maybe called I Want You that's um, very Cher. It's very, it's very <laughs> rock and it's very, it's very poppy. I mean, it's very, everything she does is hooky because we just love hooks so much. But, you know, we did, the, she came back to me and said, let's do some more of this kind of stuff. And so that's mm-hmm. where the, the four songs, we did four songs that I think got her signed, that Seymour Stein and um, Michael Rosenblatt signed her off of over at Sire. That was a super long answer to your question. No, no, it's perfect. As you're mentioning, Stephen, there is a lot of those songs that we might have heard that are floating around on the internet. There's a treasure trove of unreleased Madonna that is uh, basically fan fiction almost sometimes at this point. <laughs> and I, I, did, I wanted to dive in a little bit on some of the songs that maybe we've heard about that you worked with and sort of a little bit about what you could tell us, what you remember about those. Two songs that you wrote with Madonna for her albums, um, I'm guessing True Blue and Like a Prayer. Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but um, talking about Each Time You Break My Heart and Get Over, which were reworked and produced for other artists. Um, tell us a little bit about those and also any of the other unreleased tracks from that time that no one has heard that unfortunately the fans will not be able to hear uh another one was like morning signs from the vision quest soundtrack that was recorded but never used we're just sort of looking to sort of like because we've heard things about you know like oh for vision quest there were meant to be three songs but only two were used and the one called warning signs was never like was that a ballad was such that a great song, song? S- such a such a good song so i'm gonna need your help to remind me of different titles but um mm-hmm. Yeah, I think going chronologically, Warning Signs is probably the first of the ones you've mentioned. There's also one before that called Head Over Heels that's really good that Mm. I don't think, I doubt that anybody's ever heard. Uh, Really, because we didn't get that far with it. Um, Right. Head Over Heels and Crush to Bits. Really cool song. Um, but warning signs was, yeah, we did it. We did, I think we did four songs. Shooby Doo. Did that, 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 did that come out? Yeah, that made it to, um, Final stages of Like a Virgin. Is that on Like a Virgin? Okay. Should we do Warning Signs? Gambler was part of that Mm -hmm. group of stuff. And then there was one. Oh, and then. Crazy crazy for you. Oh, is that? Yeah. But that was Rob Mounsey. Rob Mounsey did that arrangement. And John Lind, may he rest in peace, such a great man, um, wrote that song. But Warning Signs, yeah, you asked about the tempo. It's it's kind of a mid-tempo. If it sounds like anything, it's, oh, God, is it? Morning, morning, morning. Uh, I think it goes, it's like a little Human League-ish. It's a little Human League uh-huh. kind of, very synthy, because I remember, it's, it's you know, dance dance tempo. You know, if she would ask, I would be happy to dig out all of this stuff, because somewhere in some vault, some crate, some, you know, Hollywood, you know, media storage place, all this stuff is there. So, but mm-hmm. she's going to, she has to ask for it. Um, then you mentioned, you mentioned, uh, did you mention first there's a kiss? No. Which no, I, we were going to. There's a, I have a laundry list of songs I was okay. going to ask about. Okay, well, you, I, I, can, you can, yeah, I can let you lead it. First, first there's a kiss is one of my favorites, though. That one is, um, I think that was written maybe between True Blue and Like a Prayer. Maybe. Yeah, we've, we, according to, I think, right? so, I think Wikipedia says it's for the Like a Prayer sessions. It's so crazy that there's a Wikipedia mention of a song <laughs> that... <laughs> I mean, does, there, there's, is there a leaked demo of that on the internet? No, not as far as I know. 
Huh. That's that a pretty might be that might be one of those that circulates amongst the collectors, uh, the people who who pay top dollar to have those wow. for their own private stash, but they don't share it on the internet. I know there's there's some things that I see out there that I just don't know how they got out there because I you know must have been somebody we passed a demo to back in the early '80s that then you know kept it or something and and and, and sold it or something. But um, first, there's a kiss is a one of my favorites because it's it really reflects where we were at during the uh i feel like that's contemporaneous with express yourself maybe mm-hmm. and it's and it's got a similar kind of it's got a similar kind of sound uh, attitude to it it's not as it's not quite as old school i think express yourself always feels like a 60s song to me but um first there's a kiss is very you know we both love the carpenters i don't know if that's a thing that people know, but we both love the Carpenters and Karen Carpenter's voice and her harmonies and, or Richard, mm-hmm. Richard Carpenter did a lot of those arrangements. But, um, first there's a kiss is a really pretty song that, that, that has a great dance tempo as well. And insanely great hook. So again, I'm just gonna, if there needs to be a kiss, this is such a tease. This is, she's, I, cause <laughs> <laughs> she's gonna, she's the one though. She has the power. She has the power. Well, so on that, why would songs like that not end up like if it was that good, if you're sitting there saying, Oh my gosh, this is carpenters in heaven. And this is like, express yourself a, a sister to express yourself. Why wouldn't something like that end up on an album or a B side? It's, it's a great question. I, you know, there's only so many tracks, it's not like nowadays where you can just pop stuff out digitally and have it instantly distributed to the world. Back then, you know, eight, ten songs on an album, and we were sharing. You know, I was a, I was early on in kindergarten. I learned to play well with others. So, so um, <laughs> Pat Leonard, you know, would do mm-hmm. some tracks, and and to be honest with you, I think she just, if you, you know, the sound of like a prayer. It, you know, first there's a kiss might have been a little light for that album to tell you the gotcha. truth it might have been a little light because because there's a there's a bite to those songs and um i feel like she probably felt it was a little too pop mm-hmm. it didn't sort of live in the same world it's that's exactly right that's exactly mm. right um well i'm jumping back then as well so desperately seeking susan was a song that was written for Desperately Seeking Susan. But yeah, we've never heard that song either. And I, as far as I know, it has not leaked. What can you tell us about the vibe of that? What, and I have this funny thing I've mentioned many times on the podcast where in the 80s, there was a very strange habit of if there was a, uh, a movie titled Desperately Seeking Susan on the soundtrack, there was always a song called Desperately Seeking Susan. Many songs had that where it was like the title of the movie was also the title of the lead song. Right. So it was, it's, it was funny for me to hear that there actually was a song written called Desperately Seeking Susan. And it's a good one too. It's, I'm sorry that I have to just tease. Stephen, like you need that. to have a listening party and we're all going to come over <laughs> right. and just sit in your living room. Oh, I wish. I wish I could. <laughs> uh, I, no, but, that's a, but that's an example of one where... I don't know. I feel like she might have lost interest in it. We we did a really good first pass at it. There's an eight track somewhere of that song, and it's. I think her the you know it's got a it sits in a very very cool place in her vocal range. Very much like uh, you know it's a, it, again it's a precursor to express yourself because it's that that you know that earnest Papa don't preachy kind of uh, yep. range for her and. Um, I think she lost interest in it because it just wasn't, I don't know, maybe she just didn't think it was good enough. I really liked it. I really liked it. It was very much like, 
I don't know. I feel it was inspired a little bit by Stevie Nicks. Um, oh. Maybe uh, the Stand Back track, although I'm not I sure. Knew, if my, I knew you were going to say that. I don't know if my timing's right on that, though, because when did Stand Back come out? That was like 83, I think. Oh, was it that early? Then, yeah, because yeah. I know that I was going for that feel of that kind of thing, you know, that sort of danceable. Because Prince, I think, I think Prince, legend has it that Prince had a hand in Stand Back. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, I was trying to do something as hooky and as danceable as that. But one of these days. What type of song was it? Was it a song about a woman named Susan? Was it, a, you know, like it wasn't. Definitely. It was definitely about the character. It was definitely okay. about the character of Susan. And um, sung from, you know, that beautiful uh, way that Madonna has of uh, being able to write from someone else's point of view. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, but it was, you know, about the character uh, from the point of view of someone who know, knew that character quite well. We've covered Love Attack and First is a Kiss, Desperate Seeking Susan. You didn't oh, mention I mean, Love Attack. Oh, we didn't mention Love Attack? No, I don't no, think I so. That was another one I wrote with Tony C., I, I did no what oh, no because tony c i wrote rap attack different song <laughs> rap attack love attack yeah love attack was definitely also during the it was uh express yourself you know right around that same time mm-hmm. and again i feel like god did nikki harris sing a version of love attack of love attack um oh it was for some I feel, for some reason i i feel like maybe she considered recording it or something because I can almost hear her singing the background vocals on it, but um, I'm going to admit to you, I'm, I'm blurring the rap attack and love attack in my mind. Um, yeah. Cause I'm saying, I'm singing the hook to rap attack in my head and I'm so, so I'm not going to be able to speak much to love attack other than I remember liking it. And, and it's definitely in that same, I can tell you the drum machine, RX five Yamaha drum machine that I used on that one. And it was definitely during that same period of demos we did up in Sherman Oaks where I used to live. There was an album that was released by you in 1997 called Pre-Madonna, which is a collection of demo songs that you worked on with Madonna but had never been heard before. Um, on a personal note, I just wanted to say I think your demo of Stay and Don't You Know should have been a single. I mean, mm-hmm. those are amazing songs. Are there any other unreleased demos in the vault that you chose not to put out that we haven't heard or was that sort of like those are the cream of the crop everything else just was unfinished well you know that that whole collection is a sensitive subject because it was sort of mishandled by um by people that that were involved and um well the truth is you know it was meant to be a scrapbook you know a scrapbook of our early days and uh like songs like crimes of crimes Crimes of passion passion Crimes of Passion, which I, which was a really early one for us. Um, I really, really enjoyed that stuff, and I thought it would be a really cool kind of. Um, I thought it would be a really good scrap musical scrapbook, and I remember saying that to her. But what? The, but there were the people I was working with on it really jumped the gun because she should have had complete approval and, um, you know, oversight. But they, the the folks I was working with, jumped the gun because they were probably, you know, just overly enthusiastic is the kindest mm-hmm. way I can put it. <laughs> and, um, and did it in a way that, that, you know, she wasn't happy about. And and it's unfortunate because I think those songs, I, like, you know, we were talking earlier about her sound. Laugh to keep from crying is, is a really good bridge from 
what she was doing with Breakfast Club and what she was mm-hmm. doing, you know, before I came to New York, and then you know what happened after, because that was one um, that was one we wrote together. But but there there are, and to answer your question, there are other songs. Those were legally able. I was legally able to you know include them in that collection because gotcha. of when and how they were recorded. Um, but there are some others that that's not the case. So so that's why I keep saying, if she wants to hear them. They're, yeah. they're, they can be found and they can be, you know, polished off and, 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 you know, see the light of day. Yeah. Cause I think that's one of those things where people maybe like the, you know, people who aren't in the music industry, they might not grasp why, oh, well, if these demos were able to be put out, how come other demos haven't been able right, to come out? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Once you, once you sign an exclusive contract with a label, you know, that things, that means that anything you do after that period of time is theirs. So that's just the easiest way of putting that. And um, so that there's a, there's a line of demarcation with some of the stuff we did where once she signed with Warners, I, 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 I would not have any, you know, uh, standing, you know, to do anything without permission. Right, right, right. Um, well, I, I mean, don't you know, uh, as Tony knows, that's been one of my bops. Uh, I had only recently discovered it. I think this just within the past year. You make my I, life I, much brighter now. Yep. Oh, I, for, so I, I for, totally yeah. forgot about that song until you said it. Yeah, it's uh, heaven. Uh, it's perfect. You know, we, I, did, I, we, we did that recording in um, the music building, which was this great building. You guys have probably heard about Avenue. it. Yep. Yeah, 8th yeah. Avenue, 38th Street, something like that. And I remember we did that recording up on like the 12th floor and the 10th floor because we used to bounce around. Whoever had, you know, there's a guitar player in this room, there's a keyboard player in that room, and there's a there's a drum set in this room. So, uh, But that one I have a very vivid memory of uh, asking a gentleman named, named Bobby, who I can't remember his last name, but he played some some keyboards on that for us. And, um, yeah, that was, that's a good one. I love that one. And Stay was such a trippy one. That that version of Stay is um, it's so good. I can I just remember three o'clock in the morning, twelfth floor in Regina Richards' room. Oh. That's where we did that <laughs> one because Regina was in the same building, and uh, that's where we did that. That's where we did a lot of a lot of work in Regina's room. Nez, I should say Nez and Regina. Each time you break my heart was pro- I feel like that came from was that was probably meant for True Blue, I think based on when. I my my memory of I can sort of picture us working on that one, and again, you know, just the stiff competition. Pat Leonard's a tough act to follow. You know, <laughs> he, yeah. he he's really good, and I think that that one just didn't make the cut. And uh, it, and there is a version of her singing it out there. Now, has that one leaked? Is that yeah, out it's, there? It's I think people just want to hear like a polished version of that because the version yeah. that's out there is kind oh, of not great. Is it scratchy and weird? Um, yeah, it's, it's it's doable. It'll get you through the day if you need it. I, I see. Well, that's that's one where if she if her ladyship wanted to hear that clean version, it could be done. That's definitely those are those are. Um, I think that's stuff that's been, you know, it's retrievable somehow. Um, but yeah, that was. I really loved that song because that was that was very much in. The whole true blue, she's so much in love with Sean Penn, you know that pop sort of sad crying pop song mm-hmm, thing mm-hmm. that's going on in that. And, um, but let, but Nick Kamen, may he rest in peace, um, you know, did a beautiful job on it. I think yeah. I thought that was a perfect fit. And I remember a friend of mine saying to me, there's this song I hate, 
They play it all the time. They play it all the time. She lived in Europe at the time. She said, they play it all the time. I can't stand it. And I, I asked her what it was. She said, oh, that's my song. And um, uh, so I was, I was happy to hear how, how much she hated it. <laughs> you know, these are questions that I've had for, I guess, decades now. But yeah, anyway, um, Baby Love, released in 1986. So it was uh, co-written and produced with... Um, Regina Richards, and uh, it was a big summer radio hit in the U.S. I grew up in Houston, Texas, and every it played on the radio at least four times a day. Everyone thought it was Madonna singing on the track, even the <laughs> DJ at first. Wow. Um, what did she think of the song, Madonna? And also, there are you know I've actually heard you speak on this, and I've I've seen uh, you know written um, clues throughout the years about the unreleased demo of Baby Love produced by Jellybean featuring Phoebe Cates when she was trying to launch a, a singing career. Like, that's interesting. <laughs> Have you heard that version? No, I would love to. I wouldn't even know where to find it. Somebody I know has that version. Um, yeah, We're going to request some unmarked mail be dropped in our <laughs> mailboxes <laughs> with, with some um, treats, and we won't say where they came from. You know, I'm trying to think of who... Somebody acquired that um, somehow, that, but it's it's not me. I'm not I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not being coy. Um, <laughs> we ne- we need to give props to Mary Kessler because uh, Mary Kessler is the co-writer on that on Baby Love, and that song was actually born no pun intended out of um, a gamble because Mary was a uh, was playing in a very cool art band called State of Desire, I think. And they used to play at CBGBs, and it was really, you know, one of those sort of super cool. You could tell everybody probably went to Harvard in the band type song mm-hmm. type bands. And um, we were friends, and I said to her, "I know your band's really cool and everything, but y- and you think what I do is silly and trite, but I bet you can't do a hooky pop song." Mm-hmm. And then Baby Love was born out of that. And Regina came in and helped, you know, kind of polish it and make it, make it, you know, into the solid, the solid piece of pop that it is. Mm-hmm. And I honestly was surprised that <clears throat> there was so much confusion. I, I mean, God bless Regina. I, I don't think she was, because I have been playing drums for, with Regina as well for, mm-hmm. I don't know, a year or two. And, and she had more of a, like a rock and roll background, right? Well, the Red Hots was definitely a rock band, you know, m- mainly due to uh, you know Nez, the guitar player, and uh, Charlie Charlie Roth, um, the bass mm-hmm. player and keyboard player. They, it was definitely a and Richard Garterer, you know, who produced the Go Go's, had produced oh. their their first al- Regina's first album, and so yes, it was rock. But then if you hang around me too long, you know, <laughs> you start wanting you start wanting to make dance music, so. Um, I think Mary and I played that track for Regina and she said, well, this is good, but I can, I can help you make it better, which she did. And I don't think there was any intentional, I, the best way I can put it is like, if you listen to now Rogers chic and you listen to now Rogers, Diana Ross produced tracks. Yeah. They, there's a major similarity there because it's, there's you know, definitely he's got, a, the same thread. Yeah. There's, there's a very, very, very tightly woven thread of, of Nile in that stuff. And I think there's a tightly woven thread of me mm-hmm. in, in, um, in, you know, certain Madonna tracks and, and then, and in baby love. And 
Uh, so I don't. So I I just chalk it up to stylistic footprint as opposed mm-hmm. to yeah. any kind of. I, I'm surprised to hear there was confusion about it, but because when I listen to them, she, Regina doesn't sound like Madonna to me. But that could be because you know, it's like the difference between a Merlot and a Pinot. <laughs> it's, it's it's maybe you have to have the you know you have to have the taste buds. So did Madonna approach you about the song? Did she? Well, well, well the legend I've heard and my, you know, as I said, I might get a little blurry because now you're yeah. talking, what, 35 years ago or something like that? Um, I, I'm told that we pitched it to Madonna to record. Mm-hmm. That's what I, I heard. I heard she rejected it for True Blue. Hmm. Um, and I don't, I can't swear to that. I don't really remember that, but it wouldn't surprise me because I feel like we played a few regina and i wrote a few things that that we played for madonna and she she didn't want to do because she liked doing her own songs yeah um yeah, yeah. which which is which i completely understand but i don't i don't think that um you know i don't i don't i don't remember any more controversy than that let me put it that yeah. way well good because it's such a good song and it still works i mean it, they it showed up on season two of uh the ryan murphy show pose it opened up one of the one of the episodes with the ballroom scene and it was like, Oh my God, this song still slays. Oh, that's cool. I, you know, I, I, I think I heard that. And then I heard that scream Queens, you know, Yep. yeah. He put it in there too. I think he likes the, he obviously likes the song and thank you very Mm -hmm. much, Ryan, for that. And he always (laughs) plays the remix, which is the better version, I think, because it's just, you know, Michael, Michael, I did that with Michael Hutchinson, who may he rest in peace. God, 35 years just takes people from us. But, um, Michael Hutchinson is really, really fun and great engineer that I met working with Jellybean at Sigma mm-hmm. Sound in, in New York. And we did that in my, I had a studio apartment and we did all that whole thing in, in like this one room apartment, basically. Wow. Which is, which is true of Into the Groove as well. That was mostly done in a, in a five floor walk up on 8th Street. Mm. And um, so that New York is, you know, we were, we were Billie Eilish, you know, she, she <laughs> took a cue obviously from our, our, our playbook of let's just do it at home. Yeah, I, I heard Madonna say in an interview once that um, the demo of Into the Groove was so raw when you guys recorded it that you could hear like uh, sirens in the background. And of course, I racked my brain trying to find that specific demo so I could hear the sirens. But it's been cleaned up too many times, I think. <laughs> well, well, to be honest with you, the, dem- the demo of Into the Groove is what's in the movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. That's why it because, sounds a little tinny with the, yeah, the sound yeah, mixing. Be- yeah. Because that's a, I think that's a four track because we, um, they said, give us this now. And there was not time to do anything else. And I mm-hmm. said, well, Madonna, don't you want to sing that again? And she's like, no, I'm not singing that again. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with it? And I'm like, you can hear dogs barking. But. <laughs> well, and I've said, this, right. I've said this multiple times on the podcast, the demo version of Into the Groove is by far the superior version of Into yes. the Groove. Like, I love that they've decided to add pianos and oh, other, the remixes, other, yeah. other this and that and blah, 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 and souped it up and made it sound pretty and whatnot. But uh, like the down and dirty version that you hear over the credits and in the club mm-hmm. scene, the danceteria, that is yeah. the definitive version. It's, it's, I wanted an entire album of just that sound. Yeah, that's, that's, you're hearing eight tracks mixed down to four. Um, well, speaking of 35 years, um, 
Madonna's Who's That Girl movie recently commemorated its 35th anniversary. Uh, We recently spoke with director James Foley about it. We did a little tribute episode, which I think you said you listened to a little bit of. Mm -hmm. Uh, You had done the music for the film as well as worked on some of the songs for the soundtrack. What do you remember working? uh, What do you remember about working on the score for that film? I remember being terrified the entire time because (laughs) I had never, I was so, I was so honored and thrilled that they asked me to to do that because it's such a I had never done that before and it was such a responsibility you know such a huge responsibility to 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 do the score for a film and I just did the best I could at the time but it was I'm I'm such a movie fan I was so into it and and thank god you know they liked my concept of like let's just make this whole thing a house mix you know let's uh-huh. make this let's make the score you know, this house track, because I think house music was becoming really popular at the time. And mm-hmm. even though I far too poppy to truly be house, um, I did my best in terms of trying to create a fun, you know, quirky kind of um, bouncy, bouncy thing. And that's where that's where causing a commotion came out of, um, which which I think you mentioned in the show, uh, you know, weaves its way throughout the film as little little pieces of causing a commotion kind of. Mm-hmm kind of uh get recycled throughout that thing but that was really fun and dan huff who um has become you know one of the greatest producers of all time in nashville was playing is playing the guitar on that on that soundtrack and he he was incredibly helpful to me in terms of like making that thing making that thing work and then of course pat did some beautiful you know Mm -hmm. a couple of beautiful Mm -hmm. cues uh, what yeah. does she say? She says hello, hello stranger. What does she say? What's that? There's a cue called hello stranger or something when she pops the cork. Griffin Dunn walks in. Oh, oh yes. and yeah, she, yeah, yeah. And she pops the cork, and that's 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 one of my hello favorite. counselor. Hello yeah. counselor. That's what it is. Um, I also that's love one of my how- favorite cues from that. I love the cues uh, that use "Can't Stop" uh, during ah. a lot of the chase scenes. Oh yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, scenes. yeah. I mean, that's Can't a song Stop that, is, that yeah, it's very underrated, right? That's a song that got away. I feel like you know, like we were talking about first. There's a kiss and um, desperately seeking Susan. I think uh, uh, "Can't Stop" is one that had we had another day or two to like to polish it because as you know, songwriting is always about. Mm-hmm. Well, for some of us, it's always about polishing. For me, it's always about polishing, where you kind of do this draft of it, and then, okay, how can we make this stronger? How can we make this better? I feel like if we'd had another day, you know, maybe maybe she, Madonna would have been more, she would have been happier with it in terms of the verse or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some. there's something about it that obviously they chose not to make it a single because it's, I love the hook of that though. You know, I just, yeah, mm, yeah. So I, love the, I love the hook of the song. Can't stop screaming and shouting your name. Um, I feel like it's like a second cousin to where's the party. Hmm. Nice. I like that. Well, and I've also theorized many times in the podcast that the can't stop was a precursor to many future Madonna songs, hmm. stuff that stuff that she does in can't stop, such as like the little robotic voice for oh, the can't vocoder. stop. The, the vocoder's vocoder. there. Yeah. She's whispering in there. Right, There's right. like, there are many similar things that she then continues to use in future songs. And I was like, see, it was born out of can't stop. That's where it all <laughs> well, came from. Well, it's worth it then for that. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I wish that song were more, were more popular, but, yeah, you know, can't can't have everything. Where would you put it? <laughs> so, uh, what happened with Spotlight? That was written for uh, True Blue and then made it as the lead single to You Can Dance. Did you have any um, 
any input with that song on the You Can Dance album? No, I was just pleasantly surprised that it saw the light of day there because that's mm-hmm. one where I think that's um, the, that's the Holiday Guys, right? Wrote that song, you know, yeah, we're yeah. co-writers then, on that song. I think that they came they they, they came to us and um, and again polishing, polishing, polishing. I think we just sort of you know joined forces on that, but you know I was disappointed that it wasn't on True Blue, but I was really happy. I think I think Madonna called and said, "Hey, have, Merry Christmas," because I think it, that album came out at Christmas time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I you know I found a place for the song, so I was really happy about that. Yeah, and then that's where we saw you know that's where you know I personally picked up on your Sly and the Family Stone um, inspiration there, and then also I heard it a lot in True Blue on Express Yourself and Keep It Together. Tell us how. Sly and the Family Stone has influenced you, and with Madonna, uh, and I guess with other, other. Well, as I was saying earlier, you know, we one of the reasons I think we were worked so well together was our musical taste was like, you know, you taught, you've heard the expression, people finish each other's sentences. Yeah, mm-hmm. we definitely finished each other's musical sentences, and because because our our love of of Sly and the Family, you know, it's an interesting blend. It's Sly and the Family Stone. It's Motown. It's mm-hmm. the Carpenters. You know, because we both grew up on Detroit radio, which was mm-hmm. this really beautiful blend of, of of black music and pop music and 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 everything in between. And Sly and the Family Stone, first, that was the first album I ever bought. Was called Stand. It was their album that has Everyday People on it, and mm-hmm. uh, I want to take oh, I want to take you higher, maybe. And um, single, simple song. I, I was just like a super super huge fan of theirs, and so when we, you know, often. The, our process would be to when it's time to sit down and write some songs when she wasn't busy being a movie star um <laughs> was like what what's turning you on at the moment musically you know what are you what what what's what's something we haven't done yet you know what's what's some what's what's this what corner of our musical you know universe have we not explored and i think for keep it together it was like cl- clearly let's do our take on you know sly because mm-hmm. There was nobody else who, you know, if you guys saw Summer of Soul and anybody yeah. who's listening, if you haven't seen it, watch Summer of Soul. If you like, the, you know, black music and the roots of where a lot of Madonna comes from is, mm-hmm. you know, that same, that same, that Stevie Wonder and you get to see staple singers and all these great acts. You know, Sly was just, he's just a phenomenal example of what happens when you throw the rule book out in terms of yeah. what your influences are because he was he could be he could rock he could funk he could be soulful and it was he could be trippy you know and, and it's all there so we were we were just really respectful of that and enamored with it and that's where that's where keep it together comes from yeah mm-hmm. you it must have really made you smile when you saw the blonde ambition tour and madonna starts out keep it together with family affair which is like one of her all-time top performances, I would say. Oh, very cool. Now I'm going to have to go back and look at that. That oh, was yeah. Blonde Ambition? Yeah. yeah, Blonde Ambition. And then for her next tour, uh, The Girly Show, she finishes everybody with everybody as a star. And yep. it just ah. blends perfectly. You yeah, know? I mean, those, 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 those songs are just, everybody's a star in Family Affair. I mean, mm-hmm. running away and if you want me to stay. And I mean, what a, what a, yeah, what an amazing source of, of of musical joy for all of us, and it's you know, it's I know, kind of I tragic. Would... It's tragic what's happened to Sly. You know, he's not not well. No, and not, he's you yeah, know he's not he's able been unwell to for a while. Put anything out, but yeah, I mean, I, I, it was very exciting for me at the time as I had you know come up as a fan of Funkadelic and Sly and all that you know pre disco uh, funk music that I just love, and 
at that time, the only people that were referencing um, that kind of music were the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and then suddenly Madonna. You know, so mm-hmm. it was right. No, she's very telling of yeah. Detroit. You know, she's got that Detroit in her. Absolutely. Well, let's switch gears. Let's talk about your exciting journey to Broadway with the color purple. I saw it twice on Broadway, the first time in 2016. It was, I mean, it's an emotional experience, but I mean, your adaptation is amazing and it, you know, earned the show a Tony Award and now it's being made into a musical film. Tell us how you got involved in such an auspicious project. Uh, well, thank you for saying that. Um, Allie Willis is the key to that, uh-huh. to that one. Um, you know, we celebrated her life yesterday actually because yesterday being the 21st of september mm-hmm. um which she which she you know wrote about in the song september uh ali was very good friends with scott sanders who produced the color purple he'd acquired the rights to the novel and to the film and to to, to make a musical based on those those two mm-hmm. sources and scott had been asking ali who should i get to write this music who should i get to write this music i've tried a couple of you know teams and i'm not happy who should I get? And Allie was just brilliant in so many ways. And, and one of those ways was to say, well, I've got these two friends that I think are quite talented and, and we'd like to take a stab at it. And so Brenda Russell, um, who was known for, you know, amazing songs dark. like Piano in the Dark, yes. Get Here. Yeah, she's, you know, Brenda's a phenomenal musician, singer, songwriter, pianist. Um, so the three of us took a stab at it. And thank God Alice Walker, who wrote the novel, you know, um, and Scott loved it and gave us our shot. And, and um, he believed in us. Three people who did not know, you know, we of course said that we could write musicals when they asked us if we could. <laughs> of course we <laughs> can. We, yes, we, we can, of course. <laughs> immediately ran to the how do you write a musical se- section of the bookstore <laughs> and, um, and started watching Stephen Sondheim, you know, musicals over and <laughs> into over Into the again. Woods. Exactly. No, Into the Woods such a favorite of mine, as, as is Company, as is Sweeney Todd. But, um, and Sunday in the Park with George. We just literally just watched those until we got, oh, okay, so you're, you're writing songs like we know how to do, but you're telling a story at yeah. the same time. And, you know, it's an interesting <laughs> formula, and a lot, of, a lot of pop songwriters don't get that. And we, we learn the hard way, too. Like, we write songs, and they go, this is, Sounds really good, but you're not telling a story. You mm-hmm. gotta tell us. You gotta you gotta move from here to here during this song, so that we know that this character is you know on this particular journey. And so it was a really amazing and and difficult and long pro- learning process for us. But you know, thank God we had great people. The first time around in 2005, we had Gary Griffin and the genius person Marcia norman you know uh oh yeah uh, she wrote night mother she wrote yeah. the book yeah she wrote the, the you know the the stage play and so people like that kind of helped uh us bring our musical instincts into this storytelling context and and it has been you know i fell in love with with music theater and i will never turn back because it's just you can be as musical as you want and you get to be in this giant playground of of storytelling, mm-hmm. which, which makes it fun. And so, as you mentioned, now we're adapting it, adapting the musical, the stage musical for, uh, for a motion picture. And we're, we're about a quarter of the way through the post-production process right now. And oh, it's, wow. you know, it's, it's quite beautiful. Uh, Fantasia 
sings the lead and uh oh my god that's taraji p henson powerhouse voice taraji p henson is playing uh suge avery and coleman domingo's playing mr daniel thomas is playing sophia who is on broadway in 2016 uh corey hawkins is playing harpo it's it's a really great cast Mm -hmm. and and i can't wait till people i just got chills hearing who's going to be in it i mean that's going to be i mean people are going to be losing their minds you know it's pretty fabulous yeah well, congratulations on that because I mean, yeah. I've heard this from many people and read it many times. It takes so many people in so many years to put together a Broadway show, and and now you're coming out the other end where the show is being made into a film. So it's this been is and it's been twenty twenty years. Twenty wow. years, yeah, wow. that's crazy. Well, and so what's what's next after Color Purple? What, what kind of projects do you have on the horizon? Are you working, or well, are you just taking a break? <laughs> no, there's no breaks. Uh, <laughs> I, no I, breaks just, I just, Stephen I just, I just, well, I'm in a, I'm in a competition with my wife to see who can be busiest, you know, which is, fun, <laughs> which, is which I'll never win. But, um, but, uh, you know, I got to do the with Jennifer Hudson, the respect, the Aretha Franklin film, uh, yeah. I got to, I got to, uh, co-produce music for that with my dear friend, Jason Michael Webb, who was instrumental. I should have mentioned on color purple too, a genius man. Um, so I felt I've, I've, you know, I'm in love with movies and, and, and because my wife makes movies, um, we just live in a movie household. So I'm hoping there's another film soon, you know, to happen. And if that doesn't happen, you know, I'm writing, I'm working on a couple of musical theater ideas and um, I can't jinx them by talking about them, but you know, I, it is, it is what I really have learned that I love doing. Mm, awesome. Well, I, I do know that a certain pop goddess that we love is working on a movie <laughs> version of her life. So maybe that might need some music and then it only seems natural to turn that movie musical into a Broadway stage show. So I don't know uh, yeah, if you want to I, make a I, couple I, phone calls, Stephen, but it sort yeah. of sounds like that would be a perfect fit. I am in complete agreement with you, Stephanie. <laughs> wow, who'd, there, have, who'd have thought Stephen, Stephen Bray, Broadway baby, you're just going to yeah. take <laughs> well, on the my town. Parents, <laughs> my parents made that happen because we used to listen to Fiddler on the Roof and Camelot and The King and I in my house oh, wow. and uh, mm. when I was growing up. And that was my parents, you know, you think this, you know, black school teacher couple, you'd think they'd be listening to Miles Davis and, and uh, Ornette Coleman, but no, they were listening to If I Was a Rich Man. <laughs> I mean, we just all the time. And Jesus Christ Superstar was huge. Mm-hmm. My sister and I learned every note of that of that musical. Well, so think so of yeah, the, it's, it's in the blood. Think of all the melodies and hooks that you subconsciously absorbed, you know, exactly. listening to all those exactly. amazing works, exactly. you know? Yeah. Hey, Stefan, is it time for my favorite part of the show? Oh, you know it. So, Stephen, <laughs> you are familiar with this. There's a little segment we do that we call the lightning round. But since you did this with the guys at Breakfast Club, right. I, thought I thought I'd switch it up a little and do a special lightning round for oh, you. Boy. Oh, so we've not done this. Ends- these answers are meant to just be quick off the top of your head, wherever okay. you're at right. in your Madonna journey right now. So favorite Madonna song that was, re- that was released, which you worked on. Oh God. I think I'm proudest of Papa don't preach. Mm. Mm. I, I really yeah. love, love how that came out. I'm really proud of that one. Favorite Madonna song that was not released that you mm. worked on. That's probably, well, it jumped into my mind. First, there's a kiss, which mm. I, you know, I hope one day she'll say, that song is cute and I want people to hear it. We're hoping that, uh, that she's 
because of the biopic that she's been working on, that she's been going through her archives. Mm, and, mm. and, and I mean, mm-hmm. you know, as someone who's worked on movie musicals or movie soundtracks, it only makes sense that if you want to put together a soundtrack of possibly new songs from that time, so time period, you would just pull. It would be authentic. That's for sure. That'd be authentic. Although I know we're in the lightning round, but I will also put out there that <laughs> it would be fun to write as if it was the time period yeah. too. Well, so I have if, said if, that many times on the if, show as well. Stephen, if you can make a couple calls, I have if, said she what she needs to do is put together a soundtrack of songs that sound as if she was writing them in that time that so, be, because that would be how fun. else is, she needs to get an original song nominated for an Oscar. So, I, I mean, that's I the think, only way she can I be think, able to do that. So. Let's let's start that campaign right now. Mm-hmm. Ooh, wait, uh, let me insert this in. Did you guys write original music for the Color Purple movie? There is original music, but I can't. But you know, we're in we're in yeah, post production. Yeah, yeah. You don't know what's going to make the cut, final cut, so right, I shouldn't right. I shouldn't say. But we we certainly hope so. Oh, amazing, oh, nice. Okay, um, if you could work with Madonna again on new music, what style of music would you like to do with her? Ah, uh, well, I don't know. That's a, that's a, that's an that's literally an I don't know because there are like I say our method would be to sit down and talk about what do we love what do we mm-hmm. what are we loving right now and that love could be something com- completely contemporary or something completely ancient mm-hmm. so um, I honestly don't know that mm-hmm. that would be a let's in the moment we yeah. we discover it in the moment. Uh, favorite Madonna look and this can be from mm-hmm. a, a music video a tour a photo shoot in person. Uh, because I'm so old school, it would be that, you know, the, the classic brunette when she, you know, she had, she had the, the, the brown hair and, and, and the, uh, arm bracelets and all that stuff, all that stuff that took, yeah, 80s Madonna that took over 80s Madonna, but not true blue 80s, which I, which I realized was, which, which was to me the metamorphosis into like goddess because, you know, that, but that early stuff was more like punk, punk, you know, punky, you know, gal that you know took over macy's i don't know if you remember macy's kind yeah, of had a yeah. whole floor <laughs> of that but that so that's my favorite but then but you got to have you know you got hats off to um her brits you know and mm-hmm. people who photographed her and made Iconic. her into the goddess that we know and love oh, yeah amazing wow well everyone that's our show for today steven thank you again this has been illuminating and it's been on my bucket list so thank you for indulging us you guys are uh, so welcome Oh, uh, tell us and tell everyone where we can find you online on social media. Oh, you can find me mostly hanging out with Breakfast Club. So any sort of Breakfast Club related uh, social media, that's where I am. I think I probably have some other tags too, but uh, I don't know what they are, to be honest with you. But but if you find uh, Breakfast Club, you'll find me. Yeah, and check out the Breakfast Club. They've got new music coming out soon and, uh, you know, Check out their Instagram. They've, they've got stuff going on, too. Cool. Yeah. And remember, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at MLVC Podcast. If you want to donate to the podcast, we're on Venmo at MLVC Podcast or become a subscriber on Patreon, patreon.podbean.com forward slash MLVC Podcast. Stephen Bray, this has been an absolute honor. Thank you so much for taking the time again to sit down and talk with us and tantalize us to no end. (laughs) Thank you. The teasing to know of the songs that are out there that we haven't been able to hear, but I'm, I'm telling you, we're putting it out there. Yeah, and setting the record straight because a lot of this, um, 
you know, ends up in the press or online, but it, you know, gets filtered. It's like a game of telephone. And then by the time we read it, it's nothing like what actually happened. So thank you for for Hopefully Madonna's film will put it all straight. Oh, Oh, I wonder (laughs) who will play you in the movie. I don't know. It's a good question. (laughs) We're going to think about that. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, Stephen, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you again. All righty.